Welcome to Planet of the Climates. Planet of the Climates is a community-organized podcast to bring you the latest information and insight into the KlimaDAO ecosystem. Klima is a blockchain protocol backed by carbon credits that gives people a chance to fight climate change as a collective and get rewarded for doing so. Klima sits at the intersection of cryptocurrency, game theory, and the carbon credit market, so there's no shortage of great stuff for us to talk about. My name is Phaedrus, and I'll be your host on this adventure. I'm joined, as usual, by my good friends and co-hosts, Reg and Diamond Hands, Klima, as we discuss the latest news, drop some great alpha for you, and connect you with the biggest and brightest minds currently exploring this space. Reg, why don't you take a minute and tell us a little bit about why you're pumped about meeting with today's guest, Luis Adami, Moss Earth founder, CEO, and now a Klima partner. Yeah, I'm looking forward to learning about Moss in more detail. They are our first partner outside of Toucan, and he has a deep understanding of the carbon markets and firsthand experience with people actually producing the carbon offsets in the Amazon. So I think we'll learn quite a bit from him today. Yeah, diamond hands. Yeah, likewise, it's our first external partner of the year, and I hope to see many more to come. And I'm really excited to have this conversation with him to really understand a little bit more about himself, his project, and of course, definitely getting that juicy, juicy alpha for our listeners here. Always Diamond Hands delivering the goods for yeah. our listeners with every episode. <laughs> yes. No doubt about it. On a mission, single-minded to focus on the alpha. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, right? That's, that's the whole idea, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, for myself, I'm just really excited. I mean, I know we had an AMA with Moss a little while ago on the Discord server, and that was kind of a part of our due diligence process. But this is a chance, you know, now that we've kind of, you know, sealed the deal and you know, Moss bonds are live they're officially a partner it's a chance to kind of have a little bit of a deeper conversation and you know meet Luis and hear his story too so I really yeah I can't wait to have that conversation so let's just you know enough from us and uh, jump right into it then So Luis Adami is our guest on this episode of the Planet of the Climates podcast. He's the founder and CEO of Moss.Earth, which is a Brazil-based organization that has developed a market and token for on-chain carbon credits. And he joins us hot on the heels of their new partnership with Klima after MCO2 bonds went live back on January 7th. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us, Luis. I know many of our listeners will be excited to hear from you as the founder of Moss you know, to learn the Moss story, as well as to gain some insight as well that, you know, there are other projects that have been working to bring carbon assets on chain for some time. But why don't we start by you telling us maybe a little bit about yourself, who you are, you know, your background, and maybe lead up a little bit in terms of how Moss first got started. Sure thing. My story is I worked for two decades on, you know, traditional financial markets, I worked for Credit Suisse on equity research in Brazil and uh, later covering Latin American uh, markets. And then I worked for a bunch of U.S. hedge funds, always covering Latin American markets. And finally, I set up my own investment fund in which I implemented uh, ESG metrics. And I was particularly interested on the E of ESG. But about three years ago, I started getting 
not only fed up with what I was doing, but also really concerned about all the deforestation that goes on in Brazil and started thinking, well, if we don't do something about it, who the hell will? Half of my family comes from Pantanal. Pantanal is the wetland area south of uh, the Amazon forest. And they're been telling me ever since I, you know, uh, I can remember that, you know, deforestation is encroaching, encroaching. And with this current government, you know, it became a lot worse. And I said, you know, the hell with this, uh, at least I'm going to try to do something about it. I don't know if on a sabbatical or trying to, to, you know, create a business out of it. I returned money to my investors, closed the fund. And I started talking to a bunch of conservation NGOs and, and conservationists in general um, that I knew from the financial market. And they started telling me, look, you know, a lot of smart people are going long carbon because, you know, buying land to create carbon credit projects and to be long the commodity carbon, you know, carbon credits. And I, I thought, well, this is fascinating. I knew absolutely, you know, close to nothing uh, about carbon credits and started researching. And the first thing that came across to me was, wow, is this completely, you know, malfunctioning and uh, completely, uh, a completely distorted, uh, non-functioning market, you know, just to get information on it and on the different, you know, as I found out, different 65 protocols to, to certify carbon credits or allowances. Just to learn about it is a complete nightmare. There's no single source of information on this. So I became fascinated about, you know, for the subject and carbon offsets as, you know, a first solution to pricing the externality of, of emissions. Uh, started, you know, digging up a lot about it and I, I'll gladly go into more detail. But as I learned, in my career as, as investor and trader, you know, the, the best opportunities are usually in markets where you can get ahead of advantage information wise. And I thought after doing some reading that I knew more about this than a lot of people who, who, you know, uh, deemed themselves as, as carbon experts. And I said, well, nobody really knows anything about this. So I said, maybe there's a business in creating an information hub of this. And then finally, I, I, I started figuring out, well, there would be a huge squeeze. Uh, as you guys know, demand and supply dynamics are very favorable for price increases. And I said, well, I want to go long this thing. And there was no way to, to invest or go long in this, in this asset. So I said, let's tokenize it. That's great. Yeah, that's quite the the journey there too, and um, you know, diving right into the carbon markets, and then quickly, as you're discovering, becoming an expert there, that's <laughs> that's excellent. It's a sign, right? Yeah, it's a sign that the return on invested capital in terms of of time and effort uh, were outsized, which tends to be the case in incipient markets or at least heavily underexplored markets. And you mentioned, uh, you know, why were maybe the common pitfalls uh, of previous carbon credit tokenization projects? Well, one, one thing that caught my attention was that they had basically three common traits, like all the previous tokenization attempts. Uh, the first one was 
to create coins and not to tokenize the actual asset and to do, you know, in the ICO craze to create coins that would finance, you know, some sort of conservation effort or something like that. And I thought, well, looking back, this is in 2019, uh, me looking at past projects from 2017, 18, 19, and seeing that a lot of these coins that were launched, they couldn't really associate with, with some sort of economics or, or formula. Like, like you would hold this coin and you, you, you wouldn't really know the, the value of that, right? Which meant that they never really gathered much interest past, you know, the, the initial offering. The second issue was issuing on networks that eventually didn't really become uh, liquid or, you know, uh, mainstream like, um, like Ethereum did. And not only on, on networks that, you know, didn't really catch on, but also with weird ratios. Like even when they tokenize the actual asset, it would be like, you know, 7.521342 carbon credit. I was like, well, why the hell did you do that? Why don't you just make it one to one? You know, it's already difficult as it is, you know, how much time do we spend, you know, explaining or, or the, the logics or lack thereof uh, in, in carbon markets? And then you have to explain why you, you, you picked a, a 7.52 whatever ratio or some weird non-one-to-one ratio. And finally, that a lot of the companies had gone the way of, of B2B, uh, incredibly large corporate uh, B2B offsetting right off the bat. And that to me seemed a bit naive because of course the world's largest corporations are going to be, you know, as initial clients or worst clients, right? Because they're going to squeeze you. They're going to, you know, they have all the leveraging power uh, to neg- negotiate lower prices and they're the most competitive market. You know, every single offsetting company. Of course, once Microsoft is a client and not, you know, John Doe's bakery uh, shop chain uh, as the first client. And yet the bargaining power, at least to survive in the, in the very beginning, you want the smaller unknown or less known clients to, to scale. And then, you, you know, once you've gained some scale and you, you're already sort of breaking even, then you go and talk to the to the big guns, right? So, and I saw that a lot of them had focused on incredibly large B2B and they all had gone under after like a year or two. So I said, well, those are, you know, probably three mistakes not not to repeat. It's analogous to what Clean has done with BCT and sweep essentially, you know, sweeping the floor concept a lot of us understand to bootstrap our liquidity and, and in the most capital efficient way to launch a project is to kind of build up, right? Not go for the top. And I wanted to ask you about what your thoughts, just for our listeners too, just describe why why do you think the carbon market belongs on the blockchain? Terrific question. Well, that's another thing I noticed was the first, there are a bunch of, of things that people told me when I said, well, I'm looking to carbon credits, you know, to try to create a business out of this or, you know, to go into trading, intermediating in this segment. and a lot of them said, oh, no, this is all smoke and mirrors. It's it's a market full of scams. 
carbon credits are, especially for avoided deforestation, are just scams. Just people scam the game, the baseline, the game, the you know the deforestation rates, the game, the the basis of comparison, the the game, everything. Uh, and you know, looking at the the methodologies or the way the carbon credits are certified, it can, it became clear that the technology hasn't changed much in the past, you know, or until from 2005 when the Kyoto Protocol was regulated into the clean development mechanism. And, you know, this thing really started to, to take off. Until 2019, the, the rules of the game didn't really change much, especially in the voluntary market. Like the way these carbon credits are, are calculated. It's very much a manual, subjective process, which makes it slow. It makes it cumbersome in terms of, of expenses. It makes it costly, but especially makes it prone to, to fraud, to scamming. Like there are projects that don't exist that sold carbon credits. There are projects that sold the same carbon credits many times. There are projects that said they retired them at the registry and, and hadn't really done that. I started, I'm not a tech guy, but I started talking to people in tech and blockchain. They said, well, this is easily solvable if you just put them on, if you put it on, on blockchains, my contracts, at least the double spending part will be, will be completely removed. And also I was very drawn to the transparency of, of the transactions, right? The, in the, in the market that transacts over the counter in which and to me, it also seemed absurd that the transactions for the world's, you know, arguably the world's first digital asset was carbon credit, right? Uh, it, it, it was created way before Bitcoin was created. And, and yet it trades in the voluntary market, it still trades over the counter. And that means by phone or presentially, like people meet up each other personally to trade these digital assets and that made absolutely no sense to me. I was like, well, if this thing is digital, then why are people picking up the phone? And, and like, I, I heard about cases from the Amazon projects in my research for Moss and for the business that they said, oh yeah, you know, it takes six months to one year to close a deal. I was like, what? Like, this is a digital thing. Like why? And they're like, well, you know, um, whatever, Microsoft or Apple, they, they call up a broker in Europe that calls up a broker in Sao Paulo that calls up a broker in Manaus that calls up the project and they, they all call each other back and then they visit the forest to make sure that it's there and, and everything. I was like, well, probably if you put all this, if you standardize the transactions and put them on a common denominator where everybody can agree and this is probably can be probably standardized very easily on blockchain, then this will all be made uh, easier. So this was the attraction, I think, of, of blockchain uh, for carbon credits. But I thought, you know, an easy way to create very fast a screen price is by putting it, by creating a token that people can trade. And even if it's peer-to-peer, -peer, at least, you know, it'll be recorded somewhere and there'll be a screen price. Whereas, you know, nobody ever got to know what was the price that Amazon paid for its carbon credits. Mm -hmm. Right. So what you described with the traditional market does not sound like it can scale to meet 
the solution and uh, I mean, what we expect to be the growing demand to deal with the climate crisis. It seems like a critical part is the ver like expanding the verification and standardizing the standards across the globe. What are your thoughts on the different standards and how did you guys come to using the red plus standard? Yes, great point. Look, just a step back. Just so you know, everybody, we're on the same page on the numbers. We emit 55 gigaton per year. We need to emit zero by 2030. Otherwise, temperature increase will definitely be higher than one and a half. If we cut it to 25 gigaton, you know, cut it by half by 2030, we have eight years to do that. We'll avoid absolute doom scenario. So that's our challenge. Now, there are two schools here. One that says, I call it maybe the tech one, like the Bill Gates, Elon Musk one, in which these guys think we can do, you know, CCMs, carbon capture machines and change technology fast enough and, you know, we'll drop it to zero. And there's another one that I call everybody else, myself included, that thinks, you know, I'm more skeptical of humankind's ability to do this. What we have to price in the externality of emissions is carbon offsets. Is it perfect? It's not, of course. Yeah. You don't necessarily right off the bat reduce emissions, but you create the incentives for emission reductions, right? Uh, so it's sort of like democracy or capitalism. Like it's not perfect, but it's, it's all we got. Like we, we won't have enough time to make carbon capture machines, you know, cheap enough to, to drop emissions by as much as, as we need. Now, in order for the world to become carbon neutral, you know, the, the 55 billion, the 55 gigaton need to drop to 25 and offsetting, global offsetting, which is at 12, needs to increase to 25, at which point, you know, the world becomes carbon neutral and then you have the incentives more aligned for more drastic uh, re reductions down the line. And the only venue that scales fast enough to reach the 25 billion tons per year and that is not from the regulated market, you know, in terms of regulated assets like allowances that are actually coming from physical projects. It's, it's forestry projects. So there are a bunch of fallacies or myths out there for the way carbon credits work. As you guys know, the, the first one is, oh, carbon credits, you know, come from capturing CO2 from the air or planting trees. And it's not that at all, right? It's, it's avoiding emissions. And out of the 12 billion tons per year, 11.7 now, uh, so almost everything is in regulated markets. It's allowances. It's a regulator somewhere, a government saying, you know, this is the limit. Companies that pollute more need to buy from companies that pollute less. And the voluntary market is the one actually coming from mostly from environmental projects. And out of those, half comes from forestry projects a quarter from renewable energy and a quarter from a bunch of things like methane flaring, like carbon in the soil measurement, etc. The one that really scales is forestry. Like there's no, nothing else that will scale as much as forestry just because of uh, the carbon is, you know, the, the concept of avoided deforestation is of, you know, rewarding people for not burning down trees and half of a tree is made of carbon. So you're avoiding, you know, that 
the world's carbon inventory, which is stored in trees, that that goes up to the atmosphere as emissions, right? Well, the world's carbon is mostly, well, it's in the oceans, but, you know, it's it's difficult to measure how much we, we can avoid of oceanic emissions. So we got we, we to gotta stick to forests. And this McKinsey study says that the voluntary market, because of demand on companies, you know, that are being forced by younger people, by millennials and uh, Gen Zers to more and more to offset their emissions, that this market will have to grow by 15 to 100 times by 2030. And the only source of voluntary credits that can follow that growth path is red. So this is why we focus on red, besides being from Brazil, which is also convenient. <laughs> Brazil having the world's, Brazil has half of the world's carbon. Brazil has more carbon because Brazil has 40% of the world's uh, uh, tropical forests or rainforests and 50% of the world's carbon reserves forestry-wise is in Brazil, according to the FAO. And, and we, we, can, we can tell that empirically. Just out of the number of, uh, of projects in Brazil relative to other countries, and also, uh, there are a bunch of studies, Schroeder's ran one, in which it calls Brazil the Saudi Arabia of carbon, and it says that Brazil, Brazil certified in 2021 25 million carbon offsets in general. And this Schroeder study says it could be 1.5 billion. Interesting. The stage is essentially set for Moss. How do you, you mentioned scaling and the ease of scaling forestry. What's your vision with Moss to scale up? We need, as you mentioned, uh, we need the, the certification processes not to be linear. They need to be exponential and digital. And nowadays, we already have the tech for those processes to be done using satellite imaging and, and modeling and using machine learning and much more dynamic processes than someone, you know, on an Excel sheet as it was done in 2005, looking at satellite imaging once a year, measuring tree trunks. I'm sure you've, <laughs> you've seen this. They go presentially to the forest, measure the tree trunks in forest sampling. I mean, it, it's completely outdated. So I think it involves uh, the certification process is definitely a bottleneck. It needs to go exponential, right? Mm -hmm. It needs to go digital so that we can so that the whole thing could go exponentially. So with increasing supply exponentially, how do you plan to balance supply and demand? Great point. Um, it's, I think we estimate demand to have been last year 1 billion tons uh, for 250 million tons of supply. And the rest was just unsold inventory being cleaned up. This is why price just really spiked at the end of the year because of your, you know, Klima Dow's action in the market, but also because it was at the same time as, you know, the final inventories. I mean, Klima Dow sold up like 15, 1, 5 million tons that we're talking about. There are a lot of companies buying a lot of carbon credits out there. Uh, you know, corporate buyers that would have all sorts of specs, uh, are now just like, just give me, give me credits. They're like, give me the cheapest stuff you got. That is a sign that, you know, 
the natural bias, quote unquote, the offsetters to, you know, that they are about to come to, to the crypto markets, which would unify the markets and uh, would really drive up uh, uh, prices. I don't think demand and supply will be solved any anytime unless digitalization of certification occurs. And I think that'll take a long time. And unless that occurs very fast, I don't, I don't see a balance coming um, at least in the next two or three years. Yeah. So just to get granular with our, our listeners. So an idea may be, you know, monitoring serial satellite images to ensure that the forest is still present in order to continue the certification or would there be more to it or how, how, how would this be scaled? There's more to it. Part of the problem when you're certifying for avoided deforestation is not, it's not just the environmental integrity of, of the area that counts. It's also a bunch of other aspects like, for example, title of ownership and the legal aspects of the land in places where rule of law is weaker, like in Brazil, you buy a plot of land or forest and you think you own it, but there are five other people who think they own it too. And legally they have documents that, you know, that say they own it. It's, it's not like fake documents. It's, it's just rule of law mass of, you know, titles of ownership having been granted to different people at different points in time. To avoid that, Brazil and some other countries too have Brazil specific. I speak of Brazil because, you know, that's where most of our credits were sourcing most of our credits, but has fairly solid legal databases, but that require, you know, some digitalization work in terms of creating a data lake and making sure and having some data mining or, or cleaning of, of outliers, that kind of treating of the data set and creation of models so that the legal and, and ownership part of uh, the projects is also very sound. So it's not just, you know, checking for satellite imaging. And we also believe that there are some parts of the certification process that are involve presidential work, like interviewing local communities, creation of local jobs that are more fuzzy, like fuzzier subjective in, in, in nature. And mm -hmm. you're getting into the plus part of red, right? Exactly. So with red plus you have you know the environmental part which would be red and then the plus you know implies the social economic benefits that the projects bring uh we think that networks will be created and we're working very hard on the creation of a network like this decentralized networks in which that work sort of like uber or airbnb work in which you have sourcing and onboarding of service providers and of uh, service buyers and you avoid you create like a, a clearinghouse for them and this way you can avoid abusive power of auditors and and other players that are charging too much uh, for a job that can be done at like a tenth of of, of the price a, a clear example here would be we know of projects when you ask them, why did you hire, you know, such and such auditor or, oh, because my neighbor did. And when you ask the neighbor, it's because the other neighbor did. So there's a lot of inertia there 
And these guys charge whatever they want because, you know, they're also somehow certified by, by the registries. I mean, there's the, a whole chain that could be pulverized. And when talking to the forest engineers, a lot of them are out of a job or idle. So they would charge a lot less to do the same job, you know, of conducting an interview, let's say, with local communities and doing some sort of local training uh, uh, program. So the idea is to, you know, if you onboard engineers that are trustworthy, right, so that the projects can hire them, and you can also guarantee the engineers that they'll be paid by the projects, well, you've just unlocked a, a lot of value from, you know, connecting both dots, and that's done via technology, right? Hmm. Yeah. My last question here is, I have a piece of land. I'd like to start selling carbon credits from it. What's your response currently? And what, what do you hope your response will be in the near future to them? The answer now is, if you're a project of less than 30,000 hectares, which is 100,000 acres for the Americans, you know, which is a gigantic piece of, of land, is unfortunately, leave your name and email and phone number and we'll get back to you and we've been assembling this rollster this database of people interested in issuing carbon credits unless you create a new protocol that is technology based like i i described you know based on satellite imaging on uh, legal databases and on these decentralized communities similar to Uber or Airbnb or something like that, in which you're creating a whole ecosystem of on-chain, probably via a DAO, you know, maybe a, a business for us to talk about. <laughs> but, you know, unless you do it that way, you know, the marginal cost is, is way too high. There's no way you can do this manually as it is done nowadays. Currently, you have a gigantic piece of the market priced out. We estimate between... 70 to 80% of the Brazilian market is priced out because of too high certification costs. Really interesting. So I have this question because uh, based on what we've seen, what we've done our research, I also like to learn we uh, learn more about the specific projects that you guys have supported. Uh, MOSS have supported through like carbon credits. So some of them are like Santa Maria, Madre Dios, uh, Argo Cortex, Itushi. So these are the projects that I understand that uh, you guys have been supported. So can you share with us a bit more about these projects? Sure. Well, we did, you know, Moss is a new company, but our teams, the environmental and legal team, have 20 years of experience in doing due diligence for very large Brazilian and global companies for the purchases of carbon credits. And they brought to the company this, this background that they they had in terms of selecting projects and doing due diligence. And what we did was to build this internally, this database that I mentioned, and we're going to, the idea is to provide to the market a tool for the forest engineers, especially to use this database as part of their certification uh, uh, process. But what we, do, what we did was to run through the databases and see which properties which forests had property problems and which ones did it just because it's verified and certified at a global registry doesn't mean that it doesn't have these problems there are a bunch of projects that 
do have these issues, it could amount to nothing, you know, until the end of the project. These are 30-year projects. But it could be that one beautiful day, you know, some company that acquired common credits this year finds on the newspapers, you know, oh, whatever, native Brazilians, you know, have claimed to the projects and, you know, have claimed to the carbon credits. So that's an issue that we've done massive due diligence and we believe that these projects do not or have the lowest risk of, you know, any sort of issue like that happening to them. Environmental integrity in the sense of having the highest quality credits, that means, you know, having used reasonable baselines, doing sustainable work, also in terms of the social benefit, but primarily that these projects created an alternative to slash and burning. The the reality in the Amazon is people buy land for $100, $150 per hectare, burn it, and then they sell it to the to the soy producer for 500 So unless you create economic alternatives to that, or, you know, the price of that land goes up because the yield through carbon is too high and people just go and buy that land and the price goes up, it's going to keep on burning. So whichever projects we thought in our analysis of 300 plus projects, whichever projects we thought had you know, the best combination of these factors that I mentioned, we acquired quite a bit of credits. And scale was also important. We wanted scale so that we were efficient also in our due diligence process and acquisition process, right? Whatever you buy in bulk, millions and millions, you always get a better price, right? That's true. Just to follow up on the few, uh, you're talking about projects and one of the projects that I saw was really interesting was this, um, I'm not sure again, did I, did I get the name correctly, Go Airlines, the number one airline in Brazil and this collaboration with you guys that you are offsetting like 20 million passengers per year and I have to know like how do you manage to like scale up and what's your plans on that? Yes, that's their total passengers, right? We're not... We're offering offsetting to all of them. Unfortunately, the number that actually offsets is much lower. But, I mean, they could potentially all offset, and that would, of course, lead to a lot of demand. What we've been doing is we've been going more and more into generation of, of assets, right? Which means, you know, partnering with forest owners. They come up with the land, and they manage the project afterwards. We come up with financing of the CapEx, OpEx which means, you know, all the certification work and the know-how for that certification work. And we keep a percentage of the credits. We get paid in credits. So we're building a pipeline of credits to be able to deliver uh, to the future demand of our, our partners. Oh, yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, I think just, yeah, we're picking up on all kinds of neat little stories and uh, stuff on your website there too. But I think just for our listeners, perhaps, that are, you know, just learning so much from what you're sharing, you know, the Amazon basin, to my understanding, again, is just absolutely massive. And I think the if I have the scale correctly, it's roughly the size of mainland, the entire mainland United States. Or Europe, yeah. Oh, yeah. So again, this is just a massive chunk of the planet and you talked before about you know that that percentage 
rainforests, that percentage of carbon in forests. You've talked a little bit about the threats. I know there's both, you know, climate threats and, you know, also administrative threats as well, too, when different administrations are in power. Is there anything else that you say to like illustrate that to just help people who aren't from the region understand how, you know, the rainforest and the Amazon and these specific projects that you have right now are highly relevant for people who are not living in South America or in Brazil? It's a crazy region because it's gigantic, but it doesn't really have, thank God, that many humans. It has 20 million people on the Brazilian side and 10 million on the non-Brazilian side. And these 20 million people on the Brazilian side, they live mostly in, in large cities like Manaus and, and, and Belém. This means to say, word gets around really fast. Although it's a gigantic, gigantic region, people gossip a lot. So if you create for the good and for the bad. So when people are making a lot of money buying land, like I said, buying forested land, burning it, and then selling it to the soy guys. People get word of it and they move from other places to go and burn the forest. And you know, deforestation rates go up like they are now, especially with soy and cattle beef prices at uh, almost or at all time highs in, in local currency terms. Now, the opposite is also true, which means to say that a lot of these projects, Itushi is a clear example, uh, but these guys, you know, the doldrums, the, the crisis in the carbon markets, they, they went on for, for a long time. So, you know, from 2012, 13 to 2019, 2020, really, these guys were making no money. It's not like they were making little money. They were making no money. And they were, you know, people just mocked them. The neighbors mocked them like crazy. You know, oh, you know, you're always talking about carbon credits. Where's the carbon? I can't see it. That kind of stuff. You're just a fool. You know, forget about all this conservation stuff. Let's just burn and everything and, and, and plant soy. And then all of a sudden, you know, uh, the market picked up again in 2020. When we acquired large, you know, a large number of carbon credits from Itushi and Agrocortex in the beginning of 2020, uh, they were almost closing down, closing doors and selling out to farmers. Both areas together make up for 330,000 hectares. That's like more than four times the size of New York City. That's like a small U.S. state worth of forest that was going to be burned down. So not only, you know, if I've ever felt pride of something, you know, that me and my team and, you know, us and Moss have done is not only did we prevent these guys from closing down, uh, but also... You know, these guys made, people don't look at returns there. They look at absolute money that is being made, right? Uh, so these guys got in revenues of, you know, two, three million dollars. All of a sudden, their neighbors were the ones that were looking like fools. You know, they're, they're like, oh, you know, look who's talking now. You know, like I just made millions and I'm buying, you know, and the Toshi owner especially expanded into new projects. Um, and we're working with him on a bunch of new projects. And he bought and protected another area of 300,000 hectares. So it started, you know, a virtual cycle. I mean, there's nothing else 
that will work to defend the Amazon. Don't let's not fool ourselves here. There's nothing else. Like you can have as much philanthropy, as much, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio, Elon Musk, whatever, talking about saving the Amazon. If we don't buy carbon credits from the Amazon, like it's it's gonna burn down. We've already lost 20% in the last 30 years of the original Amazon. It's burning down at the rate of one to one and a half percent per year. It's it's way too much. Yeah. I just love the way you're you know describing that this you know on the ground that feeling really is the only way to actively you know defend the Amazon. You, you know, you talked about you know people learning from their neighbors and word passes quickly, gossip throughout the community. And you talked, in my mind, just you're talking about a little bit of a tipping point there where you can go from that kind of destructive incentivization for behavior to virtuous incentivization of behavior. And I just love the phrase that I heard for the first time on, again, on your website. It was this quote that I think you have up there. I forget who it's attributed to, but uh, green swan events. Is that something that resonates with you and what you're trying to create? That was, I think, uh, Larry Fink. And one very smart scientist said there were four tipping points for climate globally, which were losing the great coral reef we've lost. Like we're already beyond the, the point of total bleaching of the great coral reef. Having the polar caps melt completely in the summer, we're also beyond that point. Like they're going to melt in the summer at some point in the future. Level of plastic in the ocean that we just cannot backtrack from and contamination from that. So we've lost these three tipping points. The one we have not yet lost and that we can still battle is desertification of the Amazon and losing the Amazon. In the south of the Amazon in Pantanal, it's a terrible, gruesome, uh, telling sign. Pantanal, which is the world's largest wetland area, which where half of my family lives, is having fires in, in the summer. Summer is supposed to be the rainy season. So it's not that far-fetched. And yet, like you mentioned, Phaedrus, there is, there is hope. Uh, there is, we can see on the ground when the wave impacts that uh, the, the acquisition of carbon credits have on gigantic pieces of forest and and little changes in prices, how that makes like millions and millions of hectares uh, uh, feasible. And one one cool fact uh, maybe to, you know, f- as food for thought for, for everyone is we, we think there's, um, we talk a lot about building a, a green wall of forest protection. There's a, a misconception that you got to save the whole Amazon, right? You don't need to save the whole thing. You need to save the border where cattle grazing and agriculture is encroaching and where, um, you know, logistics takes humans uh, uh, to the forest. Now that's out of the 600 million hectares that make up the Brazilian part of the Amazon. That's only 15, 15 million hectares that you need to protect. That's relatively little. Like if we are able to turn up the interests of investors globally and projects and the yield generated via carbon credit projects, that the land prices there are too cheap and they are. Land prices on average in the region is like 
are like $200 per hectare, and they generate 10 credits per hectare per year, say it at, at 10 bucks, you know, in two years, you're making 50%. So that's like a, you know, four or five year payback. It's, it's a hell of an investment. We're talking about 20, 30% unlevered IRRs. If people know that, they'll go and buy land levered in the Amazon. And if we're talking about $200 per hectare, at 15 million hectares, that's 3 billion bucks to save the Amazon. That's nothing. Like on the scale of human wealth, you know, $3 billion. Let's say I'm completely wrong. The number is 10, 15 billion. For the benefit to the global climate and, and biodiversity of saving the Amazon, it's the hell of an investment. And I don't think people realize how cheap it is to save the Amazon. Wow. That's incredible. I think, you know, I'm probably grossly oversimplifying things here, too, but it feels like we've heard a lot about, you know, the Moss story, and you've just beautifully illustrated the urgency and the scale and the feasibility of what's going on with the Amazon Basin. Just to shift gears a little bit, you know, you mentioned Klima in that scale of the solution there. So when did Klima first get on your radar? And, you know, what does the integration with Klima Moss, what does that solve for Moss? And what kind of opportunities does that present? Terrific. Well, I first heard uh, of Klima through my colleague, uh, Renan. And we've always thought the solution would be decentralized. And we've always thought that you got to have more incentives that we're agnostic as to the use of the carbon credit. We've always thought that down on the ground at the Amazon, they don't care what people buy the credits for. If it's for, you know, yield farming or for offsetting or whatever, they just want to sell. Like, and we... You know, we saw that for ourselves that we acquired carbon credits, you know, at, you know, theoretically low prices at the time. You know, in time it proved to be low prices, but we're taking risks there, you know, initially on our personal accounts or personal level to resell to companies and stuff. And we said, you know, the Itushi guy, the agrocortex guys, they don't care. You know, they just want to sell to make money so that you know, they can buy more land and protect more land and feed more families and, you know, get the, the wheels turning in, in the right way. So, you know, that approach of creating the, you know, creating the incentives for liquidity and, 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 and for the system to develop more quickly and, and to build a community too. I think you guys have done a tremendous job out of all of that. And this way, like, at first, it was sort of like people inventing the airplane in different places, right? Like Americans and, and the rest of the world thinks it's the Wright brothers. We Brazilians think it's Santos Dumont. They sort of invented the plane in the same uh, at the same time. But I'm sure if they had known of each other, they would have collaborated. I think that's sort of the story here. If we had known right from the beginning that, you know, a decentralized, a DAO was being created uh, to create all these incentives. I think we would have shifted to focusing on NFT creations like we are, NFT of Amazon land, and rather than um, the tokenization itself. Hmm. 
thought it was beautiful the way you described it there too, you know, that, you know, moss and clima or moss and toucan or, you know, this whole ecosystem that's spreading up around, you know, regenerative finance and these solutions that we're discovering, we could be seen as competitors, but, you know, you've obviously, you know, seen that there's value in working together with uh, clima. There's definitely value. There's amazing value, I think, in facilitation, right? In, in us tackling parts of the problem. And, and competing would be a, a waste of, of resources and it would be non-productive. I mean, we would just be wasting resources to to go after the same goals. And, and the nature of blockchain is collaborative. And we like that about it. We like the transparency of it. And we think that from the network we built here in South America and Peru as well, that there's more value to the chain and to the world of us focusing on generation of, of credits there rather than uh, tokenization or, or the creation of DAOs and that kind of stuff. Oh, definitely. Love to hear that. So I also like to ask something that you for the listeners, right? Some good stuff for the listeners, which is like, do you have any alphas to share on what's next for Mars or how you see the partnership with Klima evolving? Yes, we're collaborating or one of the collaborators for Tukin's project for um, NBCT, for a nature-based carbon token. Very exciting. And that allows us, I think, to focus more on the generation. We are working very hard on, with a couple of very large corporates on, on digital protocols and with a blockchain registry to digitalize the whole certification process, to have it as an alternative to the incumbent traditional ones. And that, of course, would speed up the generation of, you know, BCTs, MCO2s, and BCTs for bonding or participation in Klimadao. So that's, and besides the NFTs that we are creating and that we'll definitely engage in conversations with Klimadao to, to see how we could create DeFi solutions for, for remuneration of those assets. Yeah. So just want to touch on this NBCT that uh, Token is rolling out, right? I think it's a collaboration between you and Token, right? Yeah, I mean, they're, of course, the, the leaders. Yeah, I don't want to steal their thunder, but <laughs> we're helping out with a contribution on the liquidity pools uh, from our inventory. And we are also going to uh, do some joint marketing efforts. And we've become a, a late collaborator to that, that project of theirs. Yes. So maybe I just want to dig a little bit deeper on that particular alpha, right? Is there any dates they are looking at to roll out NBCT? I'm not sure whether is it is it is it convenient to share, but I think that's something that I think we all of us are really excited, Klima. It's soon. It's very soon. Yeah, it's 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 very soon. Now that's them. <laughs> I'm not sure how much I can I can say, but we have the most important stuff on our side, on the Moss side, to collaborate, which is the the carbon credits. You know, which are becoming, as everybody knows, scarcer and scarcer. So, yeah, on our side, we are aligned with the plans, and I think it's a matter of, of days. Wow, wow, wow! That sounds really good. So, most likely by the time this podcast will to be rolled out, most likely, you know, 
MPCT might be live already. So, wow, that's really exciting to hear that. So, this is something that we always ask our guests, which is, imagine now this is uh, 2033, which is uh, 11 years from now. So, what's your vision for MOS? And how does uh, integrating with Klima help to accelerate or scale up that vision? Terrific. I hope that MOS has grown to be a leading player in the generation of, of digital assets for environmental services. Our view is more ample than just carbon credits. We think that environmental services in general are to be disrupted by technology. And we want to create as many SaaS and blockchain solutions as possible for environmental services and the di digitalization of environmental assets. This means the creation of NFTs of all kinds for water resources, for conservation efforts, for, um, for forests. We're beginning, we have just minted our first Amazon land, uh, NFTs. And it's, it's the actual forest. It's the actual land. It's not just one of these NFTs that you buy art and you're financing, you know, conservation, which is cool, but this is actually like your piece of land that you can go visit, touch the trees and stuff. Like it's your trees and land. So we tend to think of the developments in the future linearly. And I think there could be an exponential scape velocity here in which, you know, Klimadal doesn't have 15 million credits, you know, when we talk in a year or two, it has. 1 billion credits in its strategy. Why not? You know, who the hell could have told of the exponential growth of, you know, NFTs and Web 3.0 and so many other things, you know, a year or two ago. Carbon credits have everything going in its favor. And I still see enough ignorance out there. It's still not mainstream. So there's still a lot of room for growth with just very easy education, you know, just by spreading very easy concepts like these that we mentioned. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that 99.9% .9 of the world's you know, population doesn't know that people are buying land in the Amazon for 150 per hectare and selling for 500 after burning it. And that carbon credits could be a solution to that. I mean, you know, um, and how many people know that offsetting someone's flight costs nowadays between 1% to 2% of the flight. You know, people tend to have this view spread by negationists, you know, that being sustainable and carbon neutral and offsetting your footprint is expensive. And it's not. It's, it costs like 1% to 2%. It, it's, it's not zero, but it's, you know, we can definitely live with that. Um, so I think that, you know, given the room, it would be one thing if we if we felt the world knew about all this, right? And it we were like on a 50-50 division of the world of people saying this doesn't work and people saying that this works. But like people don't know about this. So I think I'm optimistic in that sense that it's just the very beginning still and so much pro progress has been made, especially in 2021. It makes me very optimistic for 2022 and 2023. Oh, that's a great... Great way to end, I think, there too. I really like that vision and uh, just the way you're kind of describing that the, you know, the solutions that we've kind of, you know, not necessarily stumbled upon, but uh, the solutions that we're working on together 
don't have to scale up in a linear way. Like the where we end up a year or two, three years from now could be, yeah, exponentially better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the money that goes to the Amazon now through carbon credits, which is around uh, $170 million a year, you know, could be billions and billions of dollars. Uh, you know, at least, you know, the Amazon, I think in, in, in a few years we can save. Emissions is a bit more difficult, but, you know, let's begin. I mean, saving the Amazon would be a gigantic milestone for the, for the, for the world. And, you know, let's build on, on, I was going to say easy with the easier wins. It's definitely not an easy win to, to, you know, uh, to avoid the destruction of the Amazon, but there's hope. There's hope. We're seeing thing, things improve. I think that's the main message. Well, thank you guys. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm very excited and honored, you know, to be working with you guys. And let's definitely have more or I'll suggest also some of these project guys to bring more color from the ground. I think it's always interesting to hear what is out there on the on the battlefield. Exactly. Yeah, like with the show, like, you know, so far we've been talking to, you know, a lot of uh, folks within Klima and, you know, a few partners like yourself. But yeah, having having guests that can really illustrate that on the ground feel and illustrate that would be excellent. Cool. Yeah, let's definitely do it. Cool. All right, guys, this was fun. Thank you so much. Excellent. What a great conversation. Uh, It was definitely great to meet Luis and learn more about the backstory of Moss Earth, as well as his own journey uh, from that fund manager role to leader in the tokenization of carbon markets, uh, a journey that he did not plan ahead of time or, you know, was not scripted for him. I don't know about you two, but I really found it to be uh, a real roller coaster ride too. Um, Luis provided definitely uh, a real great illustration of the scope and scale of the climate crisis too, not only in the Amazon, but also other tipping points around the world, like uh, coral, coral reef bleaching, ice caps melting, and all that stuff honestly can be so depressing to dwell on or ponder or realize that scope of what's going on. But he also shed some light and I think made me realize too that in addition to those tipping points, the feasibility of the solutions, the feasibility is so much more than we might imagine as well too, just and how important it is to to save the Amazon and that idea of uh, green swan events that, you know, here are unexpected, non-linear, rapidly scaling solutions are uh, at our hands now too. And that's really why I'm excited to be a part of Klima and excited to be uh, partnering with Moss now. So in terms of takeaways, how, how about you, Reg? The key takeaway for me was the scaling of certification. I thought that was, uh, it's something I've thought about a lot. Like how do we, um, how do we both improve the quantity and the quality of certified carbon offsets? And he's working on a solution that, that was very good for, uh, for me to hear because we need to vastly increase the um, amount of carbon offsets produced uh, the, and, the, and the verifiable quality of them uh, on chain. 
Also, I was really happy to hear that he, he uh, wants to connect us with some boots on the ground, some people who are actually working on these projects, the forest engineers. I think that'll be very uh, interesting for our community to hear from them and learn uh, what's actually kind of the, the practical application of this. Definitely. Yeah. Diamond Hands, your takeaways there. Yeah, I think I think the whole interview or the session took me by surprise. He really understands what's going on the ground and you know knowing what the ins and outs of everything that's happening and I'm really really very happy that we have him as a partner and you know I feel that this is a conversation that we can have keep going on to really you know deep dive into the Amazon in terms of the carbon markets there and how does it um, affect us not just on the protocol itself but in general how it affects us you know in the world in terms of climate change and yeah you're right about the green swan event right and that was something that uh, you know we always talked about like ice caps are melting you know and so and so forth but you know he giving me this belief that you know there's a possibility to turn things around at this uh, with us uh, using using blockchain and that's something that's assuring especially like for generations to come right and of course not forgetting the NBCT alpha that has been floating around for a while and right now we have kind of a date of sorts like it's uh, it's going to happen not weeks but days so hopefully by the time this uh, episode rolls out NBCT will be live and it will be a new asset that will be coming on chain to be part of the treasury of Klima yeah yeah and this is like you know, Klima's first partner partnering with Klima's second partner, and we're you know the the integration is you know reaping rewards here, and we are uh, diversifying and scaling up together. I think that's the true spirit of uh, you know cryptocurrency, uh, the true spirit of DeFi, whereby collaboration at its best, where we feed off each other and we grow together. Yeah, definitely. Not just um, not seeing each other as competition, but seeing each other as a rather healthy competition that we help to grow each other to you know, bring us each uh, each of us to the next level yeah yeah and it's it's funny i mean just a little uh tiny quick personal anecdote too but i know like when i was first you know getting involved in klima and the uh, lbp and all that uh you know you, i was just googling like you know uh on-chain carbon credits or who's who's working in this space and then you find the moss website and like oh wait a second somebody's already doing this it's like well that doesn't you know that's not game over it's like we're you know slicing out different corners of that market and developing different solutions and uh, that we scale up and we grow and we strengthen each other by by working together here yeah so for everything klima make sure you're hitting up klimadao.finance where you can stake bond and i think most importantly find a link to the klima discord community as a decentralized autonomous organization, Klima is community-driven just like this podcast. So hit up the Discord, join us, and you're going to find there a great group of climates and plenty of opportunities to contribute yourself and be as active in the DAO as you would like to be too. So we hope you really enjoyed this conversation with uh, Luis from Moss. Thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to saying hello once again on the next Planet of the Climates. <laughs>